Lord, we're thankful uh, that you give us the, the Holy Spirit, that we can understand your will, because outside of the work of the Spirit, we are completely and thoroughly prone to um, giving into the flesh. Lord, as we read through the book of Numbers, um, give us that balance of seeing uh, the tragedy that's there, but also the redemption. Uh, we love you very much. I, I confess, Lord, that I don't really have anything good to say on my own. Um, I, I don't have anything smart, uh, witty, insightful, helpful, um, uh, anything good for warning, anything good for reproof and correction uh, to say on my own, but I'm thankful for the word that um, does all of those things. Um, I'm thankful for the word being a two-edged sword that cuts deep. And I pray that you would inform us by it tonight, warn us, encourage us, and that ultimately, um, by spending time in the Word together, by the power of the Spirit and in the unity of Christ, um, we would be obedient children that are pleasing to you, that we would live lives that are glorifying to you. Uh, I want to also pray uh, for Tara Hicks today as she has um, undergone surgery. I pray for a good recovery. We praise you. Uh, for what appears to have been a, uh, a surgery that, um, that went the way they were hoping. And uh, we pray for continued healing there and for good news there. Also pray for John and the kiddos um, as uh, they are uh, having a go at things while mom is in the hospital. Uh, we love you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness there. We thank you for your guidance and your provision there. Uh, we surrender to you now, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, last week we saw um, God preparing his people, but the people not trusting God. Kind of a theme. Uh, I don't know if y'all have seen the roller coaster as we've gone through the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, now Numbers. Um, I'll give you a hint. There's more of it in Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. It's over and over again, this theme of uh, obedience and then disobedience, um, God proclaiming something, God being very good to his people, and then his people... Um, not being so good back to him, but his goodness is so good that he brings us along. And so um, I hope that as we continue to engage this text, we don't do it in a manner of just looking at those ridiculous Israelites who always screwed up, but rather we could relate and say, yes, we have those same tendencies, the same tendencies um, of seeing and receiving good, good things from a very good God and then not responding faithfully. And so when we study this text and we see these details, um, it helps us to, to, uh, to be warned, to be equipped, to be encouraged, to not make those same mistakes, but rather see the goodness of our God, which encourages us in our worship. So last week we began Numbers, and um, it said uh, we, we got to, God prepares the people, but the people don't trust God. And um, the part where we were um, stopping last week was that they revealed their lack of trust by complaining. We saw that in chapters 13 and 14. We're going to pick back up in 14 today. But we saw that they were complaining a lot. Um, and uh, they were rebelling. So the chapter in 13, you go, go ahead and turn back to 13, and then we'll come, come to 14. It's pretty, pretty important in, in the book of Numbers. There's a lot of important things in the book of Numbers. Some, some high watermarks and maybe low watermarks, but there's uh, them uh, at the end finally coming to the promised land, which we'll get to tonight. But then there's um, elders being appointed, which was a big deal. Uh, Miriam and Aaron op opposing uh, their leadership, which was a big deal. Um, spies were sent into Canaan. That was a big deal. The report was a big deal. Um, we see some battles that are finally won. Uh, this is the book where we see Korah's rebellion. This is the book where Aaron's um, staff buds almonds and, and, and flowers um, this is the, the section of scripture where we see Balaam's donkey talking to him, which I've, I guess I haven't read that in a long time. I was reading through it again today. That is a funny, funny section of scripture. Like, let's just look at that for a second. I told you to keep your finger in 13. It's, it's like the fact that it's a donkey is hilarious and poetic because he's bringing his people back into rightness. But just to, this will be our jumping back end point into Numbers. Look at Numbers 22. <clears throat> God's anger is kindled against Balaam because uh, Balak is wanting Balaam to, to curse the people of God for him. And Balaam's saying, well, I'll, I'll, I speak on behalf of God, and if God's not cursing God's people, I'm not going to curse God's people. 
And so he goes and he gets on his donkey to follow Balak and the Lord's anger is kindled against him. And it says in verse 23, <laughs> or 22, now he was riding the donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand and the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. So the donkey's essentially doing what donkeys do. Um, and goes into, uh, off the road and into the field. Um, and Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. So he can't see the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is getting in front of the donkey. Nope, 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 uh, nope, I'm going to get over here. And the donkey's going where it needs to go. And he's striking the donkey. Um, then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path, uh, verse 25. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Now, I want you all to understand, as we're moving through this faster pace of study through the Old Testament, we could spend a month in this section of Scripture and look at all of the imagery and all of the humor and all of the warning and all of the insight, but let's just read it in narrative form and enjoy it. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path, uh, and he, and he uh, hit Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead, stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam. So Balaam's on the donkey. It's not going well. Finally, the donkey just says, you know what? And just sits down. I don't know if you've ever ridden a horse and the horse sits down. It's, it's, it's not, you know, you're, okay, what do I do now? I, I have no control. I have no power. When the donkey saw this, he sat down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. And I'm just going to read the next three verses with no commentary. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey? <laughs> On which you've ridden all your life long to this day. Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. What in the world just happened there? Like, he just responds to the donkey. He doesn't say, did you just talk? He just, he just, he just, well, you're, you're treating me bad. Like, the donkey just spoke. And rather than saying, hold the phone, my donkey's talking to me, he just says, because you made a fool of me. You're talking to a donkey. You made a fool of yourself. So anyway, we have these stories in here of God doing different things in different ways to guide his people according to his own path, according to what he wants for his people. And so uh, Numbers is full of these big stories that, that we have maybe learned a little bit more as kids. Um, but if we're going to take in the whole sweep of the story, we can't get too caught up in, in, uh, in any one of these sections. So um, I told you to turn and keep your finger in 13 and 14. Go back to 13. All right, so in 13, what we see is um, the people are told to go spy out the land. And so spies are sent in, and particularly in verse 18, um, they're told to look for and see if they're strong or they're weak. So God's people, Israel, have spies that are going to the land of Canaan, the promised land, and they're spying it out, and this has been what's, what they've been charged with. Say, say if you see that the people are strong or weak, if there are few or many, if it's um, land, and if the land and the cities are good, um, if it's um, uh, rich, poor, um, treed, if, if, are they in tents, are they in fortified compounds, give us a report. That's what they were charged with going and doing. Now, uh, they do that and they come back and they give a report. And the report is where things turn. They come back, they bring some fruit. It's like, look at the size of this fruit. This is awesome. So they say all these good things. And then Caleb, uh, they're saying, however, the people who dwell in the land, in verse 28, are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So at this point, it's been a pretty good report, and Caleb quieted the people before Moses, said, let's go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome those things. Those things that you just reported, we are well able to overcome those things. Caleb is, is a good leader. And then uh, the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against 
the people, for they're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people um, that we saw were of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, uh, and we seemed ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed uh, to them. And then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation has said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Here we go again, again. Or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our, pay attention to this. Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Now, for those of you who are overprotective like me, this is where you need to pay attention. They voiced their concern as, we're not going to be faithful in what we're called to uh, because, well, our wives and our little ones will fall prey. These people are too evil and they're big and um, they're strong. And it's interesting what the Lord does. And we'll see what the Lord does here uh, in a little bit. Um, But what I want us to see is that God prepares the people and the people don't trust God. And they reveal their lack of trust by complaining and they reveal their lack of trust by rebelling. Here they try to get a new leader. And Moses, even when they rise up against him, they want to stone Joshua. They want to stone Caleb. And he, he intercedes for him again. Uh, the Lord promises some judgment. And, and look at what it, it says in verse 20. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men, this is the sentence, none of the men who have seen my glory, my signs, that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. Here's where we're at this week. I'm going to look at a few more verses in a minute, but last week, focus, God prepares the people, people don't trust God. This week, we're going to be looking at God punishes the people, yet God perseveres with the people. God punishes the people, if you're writing down notes, God punishes the people, yet God perseveres with the people. Our memory verse in Numbers is, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the things that I've done among them? So we're in 14. We've looked at 10 through 12. um, And now uh, we see that God's people have despised him. And then that God's response is what we're seeing as he promises judgment. And he says, uh, go back to 23 uh, or 24. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, and I will do to you. Your, listen, this is the sentence. This is is their consequence for their sin, their judgment from God. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. And look at what it says in verse 31. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected." But as for you, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness. Look at how God moves. They're saying, we're, so, we're, not, we're not being faithful. We're going to be run by the fear of man. We see that the spies give a report that says, um, it's called a bad report. And it's a bad report because they don't report as it is. And in fact, they report in a manner that doesn't have faith in God. And they express their faith by rebelling and they express their faithlessness by rebelling. And they express their lack of faith by saying, our, our women and our children will become prey. And God says, no, no, no. In fact, your little ones who you said would become prey, I will bring in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. You see the way that God moves there. They're saying our biggest concern here is our little ones. And God says, you know what? Your biggest concern there is, is you're being faithless in that. And let me, let me show you how faithful I am by saying your biggest concern there, those little ones are the ones that will see the land. And you won't. The little ones will. So we see God delivering them. Well, we, what I want us to see here is this. Disobeying God is always a capital offense. What's a capital offense? What's that mean? Punishable by death. I want us to see that. Like, we don't have, um, 
You know, some sins God just sort of dislikes, and then some sins God dislikes more. Some sins he kind of winks at, like, oh, that's cute, I get it. And some sins he really dislikes and he kills people. I want us to see that every single sin, this is what the book of Numbers, a large part of what it's about is to show us the importance of purity and that every single sin, disobeying God, is always a capital offense. The wages of sin is death, period. We all deserve death for our sins. And so what I want you to do is just take a moment to think about, do you view your sin the way that God views your sin? Because through the text here, he's wanting us to see sin against me is always a capital offense. And do you view your sin the way that God views your sin? Or do you dabble in sin in certain areas? Are you, do you feel bad about some sins and not bad about others? Or do you really strive for holiness and strive for peace in every area of your life? Do you take it so seriously that if someone says, you know, hey, I'm seeing this or I'm seeing this, you say, you know what? Whether I agree or not, let me look at it. Let me look at it. Because there's a, there's a seriousness with which God is communicating through numbers where he wants us to see that every sin against him is a capital offense. Look at 14.21. I just read that 14.21, the, the, uh, the judgment there. The punishment for their sin was what? In 21 through 23, what was their punishment? Where are they going to die? In the wilderness. That's exactly right. The verses, what I want us to see is, remember, starting in Exodus 3, Exodus, Leviticus, and then in Numbers, we have like a year. Uh, Leviticus was the year at the base of Mount Sinai before they moved on. We got the better part of a year there from Exodus 3 on, and then they have 40 years of wandering, and then once we get into Deuteronomy and the end of it, there's another year. So we've got like 40 years of wandering bookend by two year, two, a year on this side and a year on this side. And what I want us to see is what those 40 years of wandering are. Um, Mark Dever says, the prolonged journey, the 40 years in the wilderness, is not some mammoth-sized timeout. It's not a timeout. God's not saying, okay, guys, you weren't faithful. Your report was a bad report because you saw how big they were and how strong they were, and you didn't trust that I was bigger and stronger. You didn't trust that me being on your side made a difference. And so you were faithless. And so, but God's not looking at that and saying, well, so... I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you wait. We're gonna have a pun, I'm gonna punish you with a timeout. I want us to see that this was not a timeout. Not at all. It's God's death sentence on a whole generation. That, that kind of grabbed me when I was looking at it. Like I've always thought of the 40 years of wandering, like yeah, you're gonna be wandering in the desert if you sin against God. It's, you know, you're gonna have to wait. You're gonna have to wait for the blessing. This, this was not a timeout. This was a death sentence. God's death sentence on a whole generation. Not one individual, because of the faithlessness, not one individual who witnessed what God did in Egypt, not one individual who saw the miracles and the deliverance will see the, the promised land. Not one. Except Joshua and Caleb, because they were faithful. So the wilderness will not be a bypath, but a cemetery. Y'all hear that? The wilderness will not be a bypath, but a cemetery. I, I, had, I, I had a season of life before I came to Crossman. I wasn't sure like, where God was calling me, and I was like, well, I guess I'll be in the wilderness for a while. That was not right. I had a wrong view of what it is, because the wilderness is a cemetery, not, not just a bypath, not a timeout, not a, not a hang on. And, and that was the, what they got for disobeying God in the manner that they did. Look at 1436. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land. The men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went out to spy the land, only Joshua and Caleb remained alive. So, uh, 1436 through 37. So what was the sentence for the men who gave the bad report? So what does that say about being careful about the report you give? Be very careful. Very careful. Um, what should this do to those in leadership positions? You're going to give a report about how things are, where a situation is, um, how something's going? To me, this says there's a greater responsibility, and you need to remember soberly that you will indeed be judged by greater strictness. When you teach, when you share about situations... When you are leading your family, 
Um, don't lead your family or children or anyone you're in leadership over, church, small group, uh, wife, don't lead them in a manner that shows you don't really think God is strong. Don't give them reports that would make them fear earthly things and not fear the Lord. Don't give an account that would lead them to not trust God because of circumstances. This is very, very, very sobering. Because if something bad happens, man, I, I want to, oh, man, this is, it's this bad, and I want to just go crazy on it. But there's a time where um, uh, Proverbs says, a fool, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds back. And I think that applies here, where we need to look at situations knowing that our God is strong, he's mighty, he's sovereign, and he delivers his children, and he, and he doesn't abandon us. Nothing separates us from the love of God. So when we have circumstances that are very, very difficult, and some people in this room are facing difficult, difficult circumstances. John and Tara Hicks, Tara had surgery on her neck, um, had her thyroid removed. Um, be, for, there's a fear of cancer there. It's a pretty big deal. Both John and Tara, I have not seen either of them freak out. Every, every account they've given is, this is it's okay. We found it at a good time. God's good. We trust him in the surgery. We trust him in the outcome. They got three very little kids. Man, they could, put all, they could connect all the dots and come up with a really ugly picture and this is horrible. I'm so young. How could this happen? I haven't heard that from them. I've heard faithfulness. I've heard them giving a sober account because they truly, truly trust God. So don't embellish and don't minimize. Speak soberly. Say things for what they are. So don't, don't try to make it not as bad as it is, but don't try to make it worse than it is. Don't try to make it not as good as it is, but don't try to make it better than it is. Be sober and give a clear report. You're held accountable for that. And those who teach are judged by a greater strictness. As God punishes the sins of the people, I also don't want to miss what I've already mentioned, that this picture, it's a picture of God's sovereignty. I love this picture of God's sovereignty as he's doing these things and as he's moved up until this point and how he'll move after this point. Um, as God punishes the sins of the people, he does so never abandoning how sovereign he is. God has full and complete control not just over individuals, but what we see here and what we'll continue to see throughout numbers is over nations. God has full and complete control and power over nations. Um, he, uh, he exercises dominion and power over Egypt and Israel. And uh, Mark Dever states, I really like this quote, he says, and now he justly decides to frustrate the hopes of a whole generation because of its disobedience. And then he goes on to say this, this is poetic and beautiful. The rise and fall of nations, the waxing and waning of peoples are all in the hands of God. Do you think of God in that manner? The rise and fall of nations. My hope is that this would encourage us in our current context. In a time where the globe seems to be at odds, where turning on the news is depressing. Um, nation rising against nation. It's an encouragement to me to be reminded that our king and his kingdom are reigning supreme, moving forward cannot be thwarted, even by significant disobedience to him. The most powerful military, weapons of mass destruction, and even deep-seated hatred toward an entire race do not compare to the sway, the influence, and the absolute power of our God. And that should encourage us as his children. We should look back at these things and see, man, who's scared of Egypt right now? They're not near what they were then. Um, I, read, I read a news deal this week about um, a government in Egypt potentially folding. I mean, that would have been unheard of in this time when they were a, a superpower in the globe. I mean, we've seen powerful nations in the scriptures, and now you can look at them and say, man, they're not, like, they're not striking fear in the hearts of the whole world at all. Um, the rise and fall of nations. And we not, need to not be arrogant as Americans. We're a pretty young nation. Um, there could be history books 500 years from now that say, you remember that America thing that happened for a few hundred years? Uh, we should be careful. We should be faithful to our God and make sure that our identity is, is as Christians way before it is as Americans. That may sound unpatriotic. Um, I, I'm, I love parades and flags and things that are patriotic. Um, I vote, you know, things like that. Um, but my faith is not in this country. Uh, my faith is in our God who... who who the rise and fall of nations is, is in the power of his hands. Um, so my question is, has every generation be temp been tempted to sin and failed? 
Every generation, has every generation been tempted to sin and failed? Yes, yes, that shouldn't have taken that long to answer. Turn to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4. So every generation that has lived on the face of planet Earth from the time that God created it has been tempted to sin and every generation and every person in every generation has succumbed to that, given into temptation and wronged God and every sin is a capital offense punishable by death. So our hope's not in each other and our hope's not in those who have gone before us and our hope's not in those who will go, go after us but where is our hope? And then Hebrews 4, look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. When I read that, I've read that verse a lot, but when I read it in light of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, it means something different because you just see entire generations and entire nations turning against God. And when I read about one who can sympathize with our weaknesses, and it wasn't because he wasn't tempted. You need to know that Jesus Christ was tempted in every way. The flesh wasn't lighter on him than it is on us. You might be like, well, we live in a world that's really perverse. No, no, no. Jesus was tempted in every way we were tempted, yet without sin. Our hope must rest in Christ alone. It must rest in Christ alone. Like, Hear that for what it is. You might be like, yes, pastor. Yes, we expect you to say that. Yeah, I'm going I'm to say it again. Our hope must rest in Christ alone because he is the only one who is yet without sin. The only one as we see nation after nation, generation after generation turning and disobeying. Now, I also, as we look at this, turn back the numbers. I don't want us to underestimate the seriousness of our sin. Um, you might think, man, we're talking a lot about sin. Uh, yeah, yeah, apparently um, a lot of the Bible does that. So, um, I don't want to underestimate the seriousness of our sin either. Um, Puritan pastor Richard, Richard Steele says, sin is boundless and nothing but grace and the grave can limit the desires of the heart. Sin is boundless and nothing but grace and the grave can limit the desires of the heart. What does that mean? Put that in your own words. Anyone want to take a crack at it? Yeah, yeah. We'll be tempted to sin, and we will sin up until the point we either die or grace. It helps us to overcome that sin. Like the Bible says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Don't dabble in it. Don't try to, try to wound it. You kill it. You put it to death. And in Christ, you can actually do that. So I want y'all to know as we're sitting here, if you're thinking, man, I got some sin I've been struggling with for 30 years. In Christ, those things can be put to death. You can fight against them in a faithful manner. Now, up until the point of the grave, we will continue to fight against sin. It, the flesh will rage. We are sinners. We will sin on our last day on earth. However, in the journey, we are called to fight against it and put to death the deeds of the flesh. But don't underestimate the seriousness of your sin. The book of Numbers is filled with death. The book of Numbers is filled with destruction because of the faithlessness of a generation. There was a generation of Israelites that were faithless, and the book is filled with death and destruction because of it. Look at Numbers 32. Which is no relief at all. Which is no relief at all. Yeah. But for us, even living, yeah. we have the relief through grace. Yeah. And to truly live in an obedient manner, you should want to share that. That's really good news that you share with the unbeliever. We, we should be regularly looking for opportunities to sow the seed of the gospel for that very reason. Because there's only misery otherwise. Only misery. There's no true happiness, no true joy outside of God. 
Um, Numbers 32, uh, look at just 20 through 23. As we're looking at the seriousness of our sin and making sure we don't underestimate it, um, Reuben and Gad settle in uh, Gilead, and then in 32, 20 through 23, um, it said, uh, we see these words. Moses said to them, um, and this is, if you look at verse 16, it says, Then they came near to him and said, We'll build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones. We'll say, um, but we will take up arms ready to go before the people of Israel until we have fought them uh, to their place. And our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. Um, we will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance, for we will not inherit uh, with them on the other side of the Jordan or, and beyond because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the east. And look at what this uh, Moses says to them. If you'll do this, if you'll take up arms and go before the Lord for war, and every armed man of you pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him and the land is subdued before the Lord. Then after that, you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel. And this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord and sh be sure your sin will find you out. These are some very strong verses to remind us of the seriousness of our sin the corrosive nature of our sin and the damaging nature of our sin, that, that our sin uh, will certainly find us out. No sin is hidden from God. That's what Moses is, is, is instructing his people to understand here. I want to also consider for a moment the connection between, and if, if anyone's bummed right now, just persevere. It's like, man, I can talk about sin in a different way. Yeah, we're going to turn it a little bit and look at it from a different angle. And we're going to look at the, the, the link between dissatisfaction and sin. Over and over and over and over and over again, the people complain and then sin. They complain and then they sin. They complain and then they sin. And you could say that in their complaining, they're sinning and then they sin. So what are some of their complaints? What are some of the complaints we've heard from God's people? Yep. God's not faithful to protect us. What else? Yes, his plan will not give them life. What else? He won't provide. He doesn't provide. What else? Enemies too big. What else? What did you say? His menu lacked variety. You got Southern with you. His menu <laughs> lacked variety. I was like, liked? Liked? No, his menu lacked variety. Yes, how did his menu lack variety? Yeah, gather what you need for the day. How else did it lack variety? Yeah, same thing every day. Gather what you need for the day, and then tomorrow you'll have the same thing, which was what? Manna, and what else? Well, what they asked for. There we go, yeah. He gave them what they asked for, and then there's a verse in here. Um, I don't remember exactly where it is, but essentially it says, you're going to have manna coming up, or you're going to have quail coming up out your nose, is, is what he says. <laughs> he says, it's going to be just, and you're going to hate quail. But I'll give you the quail. You're going to get what you want. And then they died. So their perceived hardships, their food. Uh, what else did they grumble about? It's a big one, and it starts with the letter L. It'd be funny if we got some off-the-wall guesses that had nothing to do with what I'm looking for. Huh? Land? I'll accept that on account of it being sort of right. Yeah? The law? No. But yes, they, they didn't like that much either. <laughs> what? Their leader. They complained about their leadership over and over again. Remember last week we read about um, his, his, his lovely Miriam and, 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 his, and his, his trustworthy Aaron saying, God only speaks through you, ha, whatever. And she got leprosy and had to go outside the camp for a while and think about what she had done. Um, so they got a lot of complaints. How have they been blessed? They're alive, big one. What else? They're not slaves. You're alive and you're not a slave. You might think that would be enough. What else? Yeah, food every day, well-fed. The, the presence of God. Yes, God's presence. What else? Yeah. How cool would that be? Like we have like 
CGI now, and I still don't think it's as cool as what it would have been like if you were standing there and watched in the walls on either side where you could touch them. They got to see that. That's a blessing. They have freedom. They have food from heaven. Their leader is the most humble and faithful leader ever, and they don't like him. So if you're in a leadership role and you feel like no one's liking you at the moment, just go think about Moses and get over it and move on and be strong. Yeah. Yeah, he, he's the kind of leader that says, um, if there's a love that exists that's so big that you could kill me and not them, I want a love like that. That's what Paul says. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for the sake of my kinsmen. That's the same kind of love. It's crazy. Um, so they have freedom, food from heaven, the most humble and faithful leader ever. And, and up until this point, they haven't even had to fight for themselves. You hadn't even had to lift your arms. Like, no one's tired from swinging a sword. You hadn't even had to fight for yourself. You're free. You're walking along toward the promised land. You have food. You have not had to fight for yourself. There's no blood on you. You haven't even had to go to battle to, to keep your freedom, to establish who you are. Yet, they complain. They complain, and they sin, and they complain, and they sin. This reveals a sad spiritual state. Again, Dever observes, they're not satisfied with God and his great gifts to them. And then listen to what he says. He says, so they grumble about the things they don't have. They imagine evils that don't exist. And they ignore the blessings that do exist. They grumble about what they don't have. They worry about evils that don't exist. And they don't thank God for the blessings that do exist. That might look ridiculous on paper, um, but my question is, how can we be guilty of the very same thing? What are some ways, real, common, current, practical ways that we can be guilty of the same thing? I wish I had blank, yeah, yeah. What else? Yeah, not being content where God has you. What else? Current ways, doing the same thing. Grumbling about things that they don't have, imagining evils that don't exist, and ignoring blessings that do exist. I just think about this. Huh? Reflection me. Yeah. Yeah. Blessing, and then five minutes later, yeah, what? Yeah, and then you can give them more, and then they really, yeah, this is really not what I want, you know, yeah, and it's just, uh, it's so convicting hmm? because we as adults do the same thing. Hmm? Yeah, yeah. I can look at my kids and get so frustrated with them about whining about what they don't have when I'm like, I'm tripping over toys. And it's like, where's my Polly Pocket? I'm like, I don't know, but there's 18 Barbies over here or whatever the you know, dolls are. And then I go in and I'm like, I don't have a 10,000 square foot house. I don't drive a $80,000 car. I mean, there's like, we have these, we see a commercial and it's like, that'd be nice. I'd like to go to that country. I've never been to that country. Um, we can grumble about things we don't have. It's not hard to look for examples. We, we've all got a lot of them. What I want us to see is let all of your dissatisfaction tell you more about your soul than your circumstance. Let all of your dissatisfaction tell you more about your soul than your circumstance. We get focused on the circumstances. We lose sight of the strength of God. We act like the spies that came back. and We're like, man, we can't take them. They're too big. They're too strong. We lose sight of, of what God's doing, and we allow our dissatisfaction to tell us more about our circumstances, and we think that we just change our circumstances, things will be better. But I want to encourage you to let your dissatisfaction tell you about your soul, not your circumstances. So thus far in Numbers, uh, we've seen a God who prepares his people, and the people don't trust him. Then because of their unfaithfulness and disobedience, God punishes them. But what's amazing in the book of Numbers is God's punishment doesn't include abandonment. It's not, uh, it's a beautiful thing. I want us to see this. It's a theme throughout scripture. We're starting to see the theme more and more. 
He, he provides for them. He prepares for them. He loves them. And when we say that God loves us, I want y'all to remember that that's a love that's lacking in nothing. Like I might have like a superhero week as a husband. Like man, brownie points left and right. I, I, I cleaned things. I did dishes. I, I spoke sweetly to my bride. Um, I, I lifted her up and encouraged her as a woman of wisdom. I, I was patient with the children. Let me tell you, even on my best week, I still love with a love that's lacking. There's still something lacking in the love that I can give. When we say that God loves us, there's nothing lacking in his love. It cannot be improved upon. You have never encountered anything else that cannot be improved upon. Most of the pride that our world takes in ourselves is improving upon things. We look back at the Model A and we're like, oh, we improved upon that. We look at transportation, we look at communication, all the electronics, all these things, we improve upon them. But the one thing that you have gotten to see that cannot be improved upon is the love of God. It's, it's lacking in absolutely nothing. So when I say we have the love of God, it's not like, oh, isn't that cool and sweet and, and sing about it and be all mushy and emotional? No, that, that's a very significant thing. There's nothing lacking in it. He couldn't love us in a better way than he's loving us. So if you don't feel that way, I would encourage you, don't be governed by feelings that aren't true. Be governed by what you know to be true and unshakable as you've seen it through generation after generation after generation. God loves us. Now, he punishes them, but what's amazing is he doesn't abandon them. Just like a good father holds his children close after punishing them, so our God perseveres with those who he's punished. Look at Numbers 18. Good night. Time flew by tonight. Numbers 18. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but I want you to put your eyes on it. Look at the titles there. You see duties of priests and Levites. Duties. Remember we giggled about that a few weeks ago. And laws for purification. Um, Numbers is a book of enduring tragedy, but more than that, it's a book of enduring hope. The first way that we see God persevering with his people here as you look at this chapter is by providing instructions for priests and purity. I want you all to see that. They have wronged him horribly. They have, they have made a mockery of his strength, of his deliverance, of his presence. They've wronged him. He has punished them. But upon punishing them, he doesn't just leave it at that. I mean, th- this, is, this is after Korah's rebellion. A Levite set aside by God who says, this is ridiculous, and, and thumbs his nose and is arrogant and discouraging and set in his ways, and the earth opens up and, and, and swallows him. Um, this is after the rebellion. This is after the, the, the punishment that we saw 40 years. Everyone who experiences will die in the desert. So God has punished them severely because they've disobeyed severely. But here, this is, this is after that. We're, 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 in, we're in looking at 18, 19. He gives them um, the, the things they're supposed to keep doing, and he goes back to talk about purity in 19. Chapter 18 is beautiful because God doesn't say, you know what? Purity doesn't matter anymore because you defiled yourself. We have a tendency to think like that, right? Purity doesn't matter anymore. You defiled yourself. Um, God doesn't do that. He doesn't, I mean, just plain and simple. He doesn't do that. It's like saying, well, I've already gone this far down the road of sin. (laughs) Might as well go this far. Purity doesn't matter anymore. I've already defiled myself. I'm already a sinner. Why stop here? Doesn't matter. God doesn't act like that. God doesn't speak like that. That does not reflect the character of God. God says, um, let's go back to that point of departure, is what he says. It's that kind of thinking. Purity doesn't matter anymore. You've already defiled yourself. No, when your children sin, you don't say, well, what? it's hopeless. You're already a sinner. No. You say, okay, we're struggling with that. It's a real issue. I love you. This is your punishment. You know, you're not going to keep playing with the toys that you don't appreciate. Now, let's talk about what it means to appreciate what we have and to be thankful people. And you go back to purity. You go back to the point of departure. Um, it's this kind of thinking that you've defiled yourself, it doesn't matter anymore, that leads people to stray from God because they mistake his character. No, you cannot earn God's favor, favor but he is a God 
who after rightly punishing his children, continues to go the distance with them. And he does this by returning to that point of departure. He's saying, you guys were impure. You defiled yourselves. You misrepresented me. You were disobedient. You were unfaithful. I am punishing you. You will not enter the promised land. You will die in the wilderness. It is, the wilderness will be a cemetery for an entire generation. Now, let's talk about purity. That's remarkable. He doesn't abandon him. He says, no, let's get back to that point where we stopped off. Let's go back and look at what we need to do for purity. Turn to chapter 30. We'll close with just a few texts here. In chapter 30, verses 1 through 2, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. What we see here is that God continues to teach the leaders what faithfulness means. He's continuing on. This is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're supposed to live. Your death sentence is going to be in the wilderness. You'll die there. But here's what you do until you die. This is how you live. I'm your God, and I'll be your God until your last breath. And here's what I want you to do. Um, This is what it looks like, specifically, how a man should take responsibility for himself, for his words, and for his household. He continues in teaching them about purity and the way they're supposed to live. God perseveres by providing continued instruction for priests, uh, continued instruction for purity, continued instruction for heads of household, and next we see that God perseveres by remaining gracious despite their sin. Um, The people continue to disobey God throughout the book of Numbers, and God continues to keep them and draw them near. And what happens is they start winning some wars. There's a turnaround point. In, uh, in, in chapter 20. Look at 20 real quick. We're turning all over the place because we're covering a large section. In chapter 20, um, in 14, there was a generation that tried to take the promised land by force, and guess what happened to them? They said, you know what, fine, we're going to do it. We got in trouble for not obeying. Let's go take the promised land. And Moses is like, whoa, 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 why are you going to go try to take it now when God has already said, no, that's not a good idea? And then they go, and they die. They die. Because they're trying to, well, we'll work obedience on our own terms, and you don't do that. But here in 20, verses 22, look at 20 22, um, we see Aaron dies. And when the Canaanite in 21.1, um, Aaron dies in the last part of 20. Um, it's this ordained thing by God. He says, bring him up, bring him up here. Let's make the, the transition. And, uh, and then he dies. And in 21, it says, when the Canaanite... Um, yeah. uh, when the Canaanite, uh, the king of Arad, who lived in Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Ethereum... Uh, he fought against Israel, and he took some of, the, some of them captive. And Israel uh, vowed to v- a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. Uh, I want you all to know that in, in, this, in the book right here, they haven't won a war yet. <laughs> they haven't um, fought a successful battle as a people yet. And the battles that they did fight were ridiculous, and they were routed quickly. But here, in verse 3, it says, And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites. It's a it's a big victory. And they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Horma. Um, this is different from previous things because they finally win a battle and things are turning around. So what I want us to see here is finally, as we come to the end of the book of Numbers, God perseveres with them by enabling them to reach the promised land. In Numbers 27, Joshua is designated the new leader for the generation because what, we'll, what we um, also see in these texts is that um, Aaron doesn't uh, get to go, either, go in either, and neither does, does Moses. And Joshua is designated the new leader for the next generation. In chapter 31, we see a really significant victory over the Midianites. And finally, in 32, the first tribes settle. Israelite tribes settle just east of the promised land. So they get just right up to it in the book of Numbers. That's how we end the book of Numbers. They get right up to the promised land. They're close. There's tribes settling just east of it. And from 32 to 36, God outlines his plans and makes his provisions for the people on how the land will be provided and what his purposes for are for in the land when they get there. So, so numbers, man, whew, serious roller coaster of events. Um, if you feel like your head's spinning, I think that's what the book of Numbers is supposed to do. It's like, whoa, they disobeyed. God is so good. Why did they do that? God is so good. Oh my gosh, faithlessness. God is so faithful. Oh, they're so weak. God is so strong. That's what the book of Numbers does as, as we read through it and as we study it. Um, in conclusion, uh, though the book of Numbers does not formally usher the Israelites into the promised land, only to its, its doorstep, God is certain of his plans. We need to always remember this. 
He's not thrown by people's rebellion, and he will persevere with his purposes. Through the work of Christ, God is able to forgive sinners and also punish their sin. Y'all hear that? Through the work of Christ, God is able to forgive sinners but also punish their sin. When Christ died on the cross, he took upon himself the punishment of everyone who would ever repent and believe, opening a way for us to be reconciled to God for eternity. And I want to read, uh, in closing, I just want to read John 3, 14 through 15 to you. You don't have to turn there, but Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says this. There was a time in Numbers where uh, they had disobeyed God, and God says, okay, I'll send fiery serpents among you, venomous, fiery serpents among you, and they bite the people of Israel. I mean, I hate snakes. I mean, I hate them. I hate them. Um, Imagine being surrounded by snakes. Some of y'all are going to have nightmares tonight. It's okay. We'll work through it. Um, imagine being surrounded by snakes and they're biting you and they're fiery and they're venomous and you know that if something doesn't happen, I'll die. And so when they were in the wilderness, this happened because they were disobedient to God and he sent fiery snakes among them and a lot of them got bit by the snakes. I mean, imagine if we were in this room and it was all sudden filled with snakes and we're all freaking out because that's what I'd be doing and uh, we're bit by snakes and we see like, like our friends over there doing this and there's a snake, you know, that's crazy, right? That's crazy, terrifying. Why is it so terrifying? Well, because I could die. And what God says is take a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole. Whoever looks up to it, they'll live. He didn't say they won't get bit. That would have been cool, right? You won't get bit if you look. No, they're going to get bit. They disobeyed. But if you look up at that bronze serpent, you will not die. You'll live. Even in their punishment, God provided a way of salvation for them. That's what that is, a picture of salvation. But they got to look up. They got to look at it. They got to see that. And when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he goes back to the book of Numbers. Jesus goes back to the book of Numbers. And that's what I want to close with in uh, verses 14 and 15 in chapter 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Everything we've studied is about Jesus. Everything. Jesus even said, the serpent thing, that was crazy, that was about me. When, when they looked at that serpent, they were saved. And I want you to know, when I'm lifted up and you look to me, you too are saved. That's offered to anyone who is disobedient, deserving of death, because all sin is a capital punishment, but God offers grace and mercy. And as long as you have a borrowed breath, you can have eternal life if you look to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for our time tonight. Um, my goodness, the book of Numbers is a roller coaster, and I'm exhausted. Um, I am thankful for the ups and downs that we have seen in the book of Numbers. It's all over the place. Um, but the, the, the variable that's not crazy in numbers is you. You are constantly faithful. You are constantly um, uh, unchanging. I mean, you are um, different from us, God, in that you, um, you are not erratic. You're not all over the map. You are consistent. And we are thankful that we have a God who loves us with a love that cannot be improved upon. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.